So we're going to speak a little bit about um, the third chapter of Jonah. Before I do that, I would just like to uh, welcome you. If you are just joining this broadcast, uh, if you're listening after the event, we welcome you. And I often make a special mention to people in different parts of the world who either are listening today or at least who have listened to sermons in the past. And so I would like to uh, offer a special uh, Christian greeting to those uh, in Kenya, in Mexico, and also in Sweden. So if you're back with us this week, the Lord bless you mightily. We shall now move on to this subject of repentance, which is obviously at the centre of this third chapter of Jonah. So, so far we've looked at Jonah's uh, flight from God. Uh, We've looked at how God reigned him in through the agent of this large sea creature. And then we've looked finally at the, the prayer of thanksgiving to God by Jonah. He thanked God for sparing his life. So we left Jonah last time, if you were with us, you'll remember that he was vomited by this, vomited by this, whatever this, this, this sea creature was. Um, it, we, we, we said it, was, it could be anything in the sea. So a large whale, uh, maybe a whale shark, but also one of those uh, extinct creatures um, from thousands of years ago, like those uh, sea dragons, for example, they were large enough to, to swallow him. So... This creature, anyways, vomited on, on the beach, and and he was definitely glad to be alive. And we hear God giving Jonah his instructions again. So, in other words, he was back where he started. His rebellion had resulted in him being caught in a storm, putting the lives of others at risk, uh, being thrown overboard of a ship almost drowning being swallowed by this (laughs) frightening and smelly creature and finally being spewed out on a beach all this trouble could have been avoided had he simply obeyed the God he claimed to follow so we meet him now and he's become more submissive to God and so he embarks on his mission A very long journey lies ahead of him. It's five or six hundred miles. And we don't know whether he walked or or what, but uh, if he walked, it would take him. It would take him over a month, maybe two months to get there. And if he even if he got got himself a camel or a donkey, well, it'd still be a it'd still be a long and tiring journey. Well, from Jonah's um, experience, we've tried to extract facts about God and his purposes in salvation. And we've seen that this bears witness to his his power, his uh, sovereignty, his wisdom and his mercy, for example. So in this third chapter we're looking at today, it's it's really, it focuses on um, the repentance of, 
of the Ninevites. So, my message today will be about repentance. The repentance of those people. The apparent repentance of God himself. And then finally, what form the preaching of repentance should take today. So here's the first point then. It's the repentance of the people. So it tells us in verse uh, 4 about Jonah going a day's journey into Nineveh. Now based on what I proposed to you a couple of weeks ago about the size of Nineveh, I understand this to mean either he walked around the city of Nineveh for a day or he travelled 10 to 20 miles into the larger area that I called Greater Nineveh, which we compared to the amalgamation of towns known as like Greater Manchester, I, I compared it to. Many sermons, many, many sermons have been uh, given about Jonah's preaching and a lot of them seem to be based on all kinds of assumptions. That's a, that's a, a temptation uh, preachers, all preachers, fall into. And you'll find that preachers will often claim uh, quite confidently that Jonah preached just one message and it contained just those few words that we saw in verse 4. The truth is we don't know how many times Jonah preached. Or how many different locations in Nineveh he preached. And whether the words recorded for us make up the entirety of what he said. But for some reason, these are all the words that we have recorded so when we look at that, it leaves for us this great contrast between the insignificant voice of a single man and the subsequent repentance of hundreds of thousands of people. This was one of the biggest acts of corporate repentance in history. You will know, won't you, that the heathen had this... Uh, they had this habit of not recording anything in their history that showed them in a bad light. And that's a shame, really, because it would have been nice if the Assyrians themselves would have included this major event from, from their perspective in, in the history they left for us. But, but still, what a change it was. Now, you heard me describe a couple of weeks ago the depths of wickedness of the Assyrian people. Yet they believed God. They believed in a God that wasn't their own. They believed, they believed that, that this God was, was the real deal. He had the power to overthrow their entire civilization. We see too in, in verse 6. That this repentance uh, stretched to the highest levels in society. The king himself carried out the ritual, the ritual of grief that the ancients practiced. 
swapping the, the, the finest robes for a covering of this rough cloth. And coming off his ornate throne and sitting instead in a pile of ash. Now we might find the whole sackcloth and ashes thing a bit odd. It's all very theatrical. But is it genuine? It's no different from crying. In our culture, when people cry, we don't always know for sure whether it's sincere or not. So yes, people using sackcloth and ashes can be faking it. But in our passage, it's clear there was a genuine repentance behind it all. The people were calling for a city-wide fast. So depriving themselves of food and water. And then the king followed that up, it seems, by making this uh, royal decree. So it, there would be this season of fasting and, and people were to wear this, this rough uh, clothing, this uncomfortable sackcloth. More importantly, people were to turn from their wicked ways. Even the animals were included in the outward show of repentance. They too would be covered in sackcloth and denied water and food for a season. It's very common for commentators to claim the livestock repented too. Well, you see, every preacher wants to comment on a passage of scripture in a refreshing way. That That's okay, but there's always the temptation to impress the hearers by revealing something in the passage no one else has spotted. You know, it makes them look good. And that's just a sad reality. You know, your, your preachers are men. And they, they, they do sin. And so, sometimes they, they go too far with, with some idea and they think this will knock their socks off, this will. And so it is that we hear preachers, um, they tell us about the cows repenting of their sins. Now, it should be obvious to you that for several reasons we shouldn't really give any uh, credence to that idea. We, 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 it makes no sense to, to claim that the, the, the cows, the goats, the sheep and the donkeys were all consciously crying out to God for mercy because of the sinfulness in their midst. After a few days without having any food or water, the animals would have started to make a lot of noise and their sorrowful voices, their uh, bellowing, would have added to the sorrowful voices of the people and it would exaggerate the spectacle of repentance. That's the point. We see in all this the, the essence of what repentance is anyway. Proper repentance demands we both Stop sinning and turn to God for mercy. Obviously, the people in Nineveh didn't suddenly become sinless. I think they became much like what modern the modern-day evangelical is like. I'm sure they stopped committing acts of violence. That's what, you know, Christians, when they're converted, they normally don't just 
carry on with those overt acts of sin. So I'm sure the Ninevites stopped, you know, attacking each other. I'm sure the prostitution came to an end. I'm sure people did stop stealing. But like us, they'd still have artifacts of sin within them. So outwardly, the change of behaviour would be nothing less than revolutionary. And this would have come from a genuine change within also. But my point is, a genuine repentance requires we at least, at the very least, stop committing the most obvious sins, the ones that are most obvious to us. Now, rooting out the more subtle sins usually takes time. So you see when someone is born again, you will see a dramatic change in their lifestyle, in their habits, but you will that, that, that that's quite that's all overnight really most of the time and then and then you'll see you'll see these other more uh, sins that are more difficult to uproot that they, they they could last for decades they could torment the Christian for decades to every day of their life till they die but apart from turning away from sin, Proper repentance then demands that we turn to God and beg for forgiveness. And this is what the people of Nineveh did. They all prayed to God and begged him to change his mind and spare their lives. Well, that naturally brings us on to this uh, second point, which is about the repentance of God. If the repentance of the people of Nineveh was significant because of the numbers involved, the repentance of God was significant because of who he is. Based on what we know about God, it doesn't sound right at all. How is it possible God can repent? More recently, the word, the word repent has been replaced by alternatives in some Bibles, they've, they've translated it as relent. Relent. And that's useful. But as useful as it is, we're still left with the difficulty that it's the same Hebrew word. The same Hebrew word is used to describe the, the, the repentance um, of the Ninevites and what God did. The reason for the difficulties to do with the character of God there's a doctrine which refers to God's immutability. This means God cannot be changed. Not even if the whole of creation were to conspire against God to change his nature, could he be changed. The doctrine also means that God cannot change himself. Now, we describe God as omnipotent. And there is a sense in which that, 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 that's true. That he is all-powerful. That's true. But th there are limits. The way God is means there are limits to what he can do. Even with all his power, he cannot say, just discard his immortality, become immortal, and then die. He cannot uh, cease to be a trinity 
and instead become a duality. And for us, we're we're very grateful that he, he cannot go back on his promises to save his people eternally. It's because of his unchangeability we have this confidence in our eternal future. Let's have a look at this reference to God's immutability. This is in the scriptures. It's in it's in Numbers. Let's see if I can get that on the screen. It says, God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? So this makes it clear that God cannot lie, repent, or go back on his word. It's this type of apparent contradiction which many atheists seize on to use as ammunition, you know, against a belief in God. But the only people who'd use that sort of argument are either they're either people with a below average intelligence, but they genuinely believe that they've made a cast iron case. Something they found on Google and they think they think they've ended up, you know, thousands of years of debate with their argument. Or it could be we're talking about people with above average intelligence. But they use the argument in an act of desperation. So even with all that intelligence, that intelligence does not bring a more more, um, impartial look at what's in front of them. Not at all. Intelligent people are just as biased towards their own worldview as anyone else. So the solution to this, really, it's seen in our how often we uh, use the same word in different ways. When we say the Ninevites repented, well, we mean it in the way I described earlier, with a, a, a turning from sin and prayers to God for mercy. Now, when we say God repented, it's to be understood as a figure of speech. Here, the the word's used in a different way. As part of what what we sometimes call the language of accommodation. Accommodation. It's, It's something that I'm doing right now. Okay, so to be understood by as many people as possible, I change the way I speak. So naturally, I speak very quickly. I don't pronounce my words properly and I speak with a Scouse accent. Now, if you're not from the UK, Scouse just describes the um, accent of someone from the city of Liverpool. So in preaching, I speak more slowly. I pronounce my words more carefully and I try to neutralise my accent. I'm not compromising who I am. I simply want the ministering of this vitally important word of God to be as clear as possible. So in doing this, I'm in a way employing this principle of accommodation. I'm I'm changing my communication for the sake of clarity. Now, God does the same to us. Through his human authors, patriarchs, prophets, apostles, he He describes his appearance, 
his character, his behaviour in ways we can relate to. When the Bible describes our Heavenly Father as sitting on a throne, bearing his holy arm, enjoying the smell of animal sacrifices and so on, it should be clear to you. We're not meant to understand these literally. The image given to us here is God issuing a threat, the people asking him not to harm them, and God agreeing to their request. It's a theatrical representation of what's really going on. And it's there to teach us something. It it encourages us not to get bogged down in the the mysteries of God's providence, but rather see it more simply. Why do you pray? Well, you, you pray because you believe God responds to your prayer, yes? And when we say God responds, that implies he's changing course. It's as if he wasn't going to do this thing, but now you've asked him, he is going to do it. Now, theologically, let's just be clear about this. We know that what we call God answering our prayers is nothing more than God doing what he was always going to do. In the same way, God was always going to spare Nineveh. His threat against the city was conditional. A sort of... Well, all his threats really are conditional. They are... It's understood they carry this condition which is, however, if you repent, I won't do it. Let's have a look at this example in Jeremiah. This is God speaking, but through through the prophets, so the, the, the God's uh, words. Uh, he says, At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it, if that nation against whom I have pronounced turn from their evil, I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. So that described as a condition. If I pronounce doom on a city, if they repent, then I will uh, have mercy on them. That's what God says. Now, <laughs> The, the mystery of how God meshes our prayers with his will is too great for us to understand. It really is. And like I said, God doesn't want us to waste time trying to attain a complete understanding of something that's far beyond us. Instead, for you and me, he's reduced it to a formula that has both simplicity and a heavenly elegance ask says God and you shall receive the Ninevites understood the threat well enough God would demolish their city unless they repented first they did repent and he did relent The complexity of the the purpose of God in saving Nineveh, it's unfathomable. But let's just think about a few of the results 
of God sparing the city. The results of the whole, well, the results of the whole, um, the whole episode really. Well, firstly, in his his threats against Nineveh, he declared his power. It was clear he had power to do what he said. Then, amidst the general repentance, there may well may well have been many of God's elect who repented unto salvation. They repented in a way that was always going to lead to actual salvation eternally. And also, in bringing about the repentance, God not only showcased his mercy, but prevented innumerable acts of wickedness. Consider as well that this event would play a part in God's um, God's plan for every uh, individual within that city. You see, he had individual plans for those for those, for every single uh, person, and so that bigger event was part of their personal story. And then, as the far greater multitude, who would read about it afterwards, us and all the, the people who've read it for the past two thousand years, and so that so we can see, can't you, that God accomplishes innumerable intentions. In this one act, one act of um, threat followed by mercy. One, uh, one interesting uh, purpose of God sparing Nineveh was his use of them as a weapon of war against the northern kingdom of Israel 30 years later. The repentant spirit of the people of Nineveh, of some of them, it would be temporary. And then we have the emergence of the next generation. And I've said to you before, the children of people who have repented towards God, they they don't inherit that repentance. And so a brand new generation arose in Nineveh and you mix all that with the with the the unbelief uh, that was even in, even among that big act of repentance and we get spiritual decline and in fact we would see Nineveh become part of the Assyrian armies which are used by God to punish Israel's idolater king Jeroboam you can read about Jeroboam in um, read about him in Second Kings and or is it First Kings? And uh, you read about how he made um, idols and so on. Well, let's just mention this uh, point about what is it that we share with people? What is what? what where does repentance fit in? with uh, our activities today well of course it's preached today we preach repentance towards God and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and we, we think chiefly of um, pastors and evangelists who 
we'll 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 spend more time doing these things, evangelizing. But don't forget that this is there is a job for everyone. Now, with the limited details of what Jonah preached, we might conclude that we might conclude that his message was different from ours, and and it's true there was no preaching about Jesus Christ specifically. I mean, this was before the incarnation, you know, so. We should keep in mind two things. and One is the message was the same at its most fundamental level. Man has sinned. God is angry. Punishment will follow. But mercy can be found in him. The same message. And another thing to remember is that, you know, Jesus was preached in the Old Testament. He was preached by the patriarchs. He was preached by the prophets. They didn't know him by the name of Jesus, but they did use terms which are equivalent in meaning to the names Jesus and Christ. But you and I live in a special time and the gospel's been revealed to us through the Bible in a far more comprehensive way. So the Messiah's come. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ. And all we need to know about him has been revealed to us. It's interesting. You might remember Jesus uh, referring to Jonah and this and this uh, incredible tale. You might remember the religious leaders of his day. They promised him they'd believe on him if only he would give them a sign. Hmm. They were obsessed with signs, with proofs. And Jesus refused. So the one who could call down fire from heaven not only wouldn't do it, but also condemned those who asked for such things. Now this is what he says to them. This is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 39 and 40. But Jesus answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it but the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But let me just point out quickly there, where it says the, the, the whale's belly. You, you shouldn't think it means a whale specifically. Um, th- this New Testament word, like the Old Testament one, um, refers just to a, a sea creature. And here, you know, the translators have just made a decision that it was, it was a whale. So... Jesus denied them um, a sign in the form of a spectacle, which is what they want, a big show. But he taught them that Jonah's experience was the only sign they'd be given, the sign of Jonah. What he meant was Jonah's experience with the fish was to foreshadow his time in the grave. 
the subtle difference is, I, I said jo- Jonah's time in the water in the in the in the fish, it was as good as being in the grave. But of course, Jesus died in the proper sense. That's that's the difference. Now, J- Jesus is going into the grave. It, it isn't itself impressive or unusual the same thing happens to everyone the crucial difference is jesus was only three days and three nights in the grave the grave couldn't keep a hold of him if you like so after that symbolic period had ended a resurrected jesus walked out of that tomb now when people demand evidence from us which they do We've no obligation to provide sophisticated evidence which stands up to their scientific or philosophical scrutiny. We are to testify Jesus has risen. Jesus is the Saviour. And this, uh, this, this resurrection, it means, it means so much more than someone coming back to life um you know jesus wasn't the first or the last person to to come back to life after properly dying jesus's resurrection was a victory over death itself it was the signing of the death warrant for satan and a display of uh, a future resurrection promised to all those who are aligned with Jesus, all, all us who trust in him. Now, our, our conviction of the truth of the resurrection is based on two things. Well, there are the eyewitness testimonies recorded for us in Scripture. Um, so we, we, we find them convincing. And then there's also the fruit of the resurrection in our own lives. We have, we have um, an inward Holy Spirit-induced certainty that our sins have been forgiven by God and that forgiveness could only come with the success of Jesus's mission Calvary was not enough we had to have the empty tomb as well you'll find plenty of people in this world who scoff at our claims let them let them just remember this, they are the same people who would listen in a far more even-handed way if they were in one of our law courts. When someone takes a stand to give evidence, the, 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 the people listening are not looking for an unanswerable case. The witness simply states what they believe to be true and then the jury makes a judgment as to the truthfulness of it. So they, 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 the jury listens sort of as impartially as they can. But that even-handed attitude goes out the window when people are listening to us give evidence about our encounter with Jesus Christ. In their blindness, they repeat almost word for word what their spiritual forefathers, the Pharisees, said. Show us a sign. Show us a sign. Give us proof. That's all they say. Anyone... Who's um, anyone who's familiar with the scriptures will just 
shake their heads in frustration uh, with, with, with that attitude because we can point to many um, uh, occurrences recorded in the Bible where the provision of all these miraculous gifts by themselves didn't produce the effects people think they would. So the, the people in the world, they, they will tell you, they would tell you with, with passionately that they believe in God on the spot if they saw a sign. From our knowledge of the scriptures, we predict something else. If people today saw a miracle, they'd be amazed. Many would even spontaneously break out in acknowledgement of God's great power. But when this state of euphoria has ended, be it a week, a year, whatever, what would the lasting result be? Well, we could use multiple examples from the Bible to show just how temporary most of these effects are. The example I want to use today concerns those places in Galilee where Jesus did so many miracles. Places like, you know, Bethsaida, um, Capernaum, those, th those, those northern places. So the people in those places witnessed more miracles than probably anyone else in the whole of history. Now let's listen to Jesus' uh, condemnation of them. Woe unto thee, Chorazin, woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Zidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Now, I'm not saying that miracles were, you know, useless. Jesus and the apostles used them to confirm their message. But Jesus is deliberately showing through the example of the Galileans that miracles will not save an unbelieving heart. Even if we pile on the miracles, it won't make any difference. So the point is, whether miracles are present or not, God's grace must be given to a sinner by God himself or they will perish. Christians today often get disheartened at the apparent um, the apparent lack of response to their message. I remember a brother coming to me and saying, I mean, he was so despondent, he said he'd given out 10,000 gospel leaflets in his local area with contact details on, and he'd received not one response as a result. When we think about these, when we read about these sudden surges of <clears throat> religious enthusiasm, such as um, what, um, say, George Whitfield encountered when he went to um, when he went to um, America, when he went to Georgia. Um, we don't know how much of that is genuine. But what we should remember is the work of God in drawing in his elect people to his kingdom is more often than not a slow and quiet business. Considerable time will usually pass before 
you know, we hear of someone turning to Jesus Christ. But it continues nonetheless. And that running total of the redeemed keeps increasing. Sometimes it increases more quickly than at other times. But it always goes up. It never goes down. When we bemoan you know, the lack of interest around us in the things of God, we shouldn't forget that each day the number of that great multitude of gods is rising. It may not be on your doorstep. So what? It may be in South America or China or Alaska. It doesn't matter. We should just count it a great privilege to be witnesses for the gospel. Whatever, whatever it was Jonas said, the principle remains it was a lone voice that caused an entire metropolis to repent. Now you may think, well, that's unlikely to happen today, and I'd agree. Uh, we, we haven't seen it happen throughout history. There's no good reason to expect it now. Now I know there's not one of you out there who would deny that God could save an entire country in one go if he wanted to. So we keep hold of the faith that he could do this. We remember he's that powerful. But we remember also that not many people travel down that road which leads to eternal life. Most people are on the broad road which leads to destruction, a type of annihilation which is conscious and never ends. So we press on. We declare not that Jesus loves everyone or not that Jesus died for everyone or anything like that. We declare Jesus Christ and him crucified. And we assure people if they're burdened with sin and they'll approach God in humility, he will if you like, repent of the evil he would have done. And remember this. He won't only accept their repentance and grant mercy, but will delight in that repentance and he will delight to respond in mercy. Now, to you who are believers, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always by all means. The Lord be with you all. Amen. Thank you, folks. Thank you for um, joining together with God's people. If you're new road folk, I shall see you, God willing, on our, on Wednesday for our Zoom meeting. For the rest of you, have a great and blessed week. And uh, keep God in the forefront of your thoughts. And I shall, uh, if you join us again next week, I shall count it a great privilege to continue to minister the word of God to you over the internet. Uh, until then, goodbye.